You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. This past week, we spent a little time in Arizona at our annual Harvest Senior Pastors Retreat. So we were surrounded by Harvest Senior Pastors and just had a fantastic time. And... um, On the way back, I was standing in line at the airport through that security cattle stall thing they've got going on there in the Phoenix airport, and it was like a 45-minute thing to get through the security, but while I was standing there, um, my phone started to blow up, and it turns out that the hotel that I had just checked out of was calling to inform me that I had forgotten something. I left my laptop. That's what I said. I mean, I don't, I would rather forget one of my children than my laptop, you know, and I've been known to carry my laptop places where I've forgotten my children. How many of you are a little forgetful? Okay, some of you aren't humble enough. How many of your spouse is a little forgetful? Okay, good. Thank you for the honesty to confess someone else's sin. Um, I'm I'm, I'm at times a little forgetful. There's, There's things that we have a tendency to forget. Do you know that God's people are prone to forget some things? And so this morning, what we're going to see is we open up to the third chapter of the book of Joshua. Everybody do that right now. Open your Bible to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to find out that God, because he knows his people are prone to forget, gives some reminders. There are some things that God never wants us to forget because there are some things that if we forget them, we stop moving Onward, We're going to see that vividly illustrated through three very specific, very visual reminders here in Joshua. Now, I want to give you a little warning here as we start. This is a high scripture content message. We're going to cover three chapters in Joshua. It's okay, you can breathe. We're still going to get out at the same time. We're not going to look at every single verse, but we're going to look at some particular things that God wants us to see in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. Each one of those three chapters has a different visual reminder. And we've been kind of front-loading the message with a sentence. If I only could tell you the message in one sentence, here is what it would be. God wants me to remember His faithfulness with every step I take onward in faith. We will stop taking steps onward when we forget how faithful and how gracious and how good God is. And so we're going to see these three reminders from Joshua chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. And of course the story here is if you're, if you're new, understand what we're doing here. Um, We believe that God wrote a book, and when we meet together as God's people, we believe there's some things that God wants us to be reminded of in the book. So we open it up, we kind of go verse by verse through the book here. And so, uh, just to catch you up if you're new, God has a promised land that he wanted his people to enter into thousands of years ago. That piece of land is still being fought over today. And yet, as God's people went in, his promise is that they were to get in the land, they were to get in on to a place in the land, and they were to get all that God had for them in the land. And there are lessons for you and I because God wants every one of us as his people to be moving onward. The direction of the Christian life is always onward. No matter how far you've wandered, no matter how far you've come, there is something out there God wants you to get on with and to get into and to get all that God has for you. And so there's all kinds of lessons for us here in the book of Joshua. Now here's the first reminder. We're going to see it in Joshua chapter 3. I'll just give it to you this, this way. There is something that God wants to remind me, and it's this. He wants to remind me who is with me. So the first point is this. I will never forget who is with me. Let's see it here from Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. How many of you are that kind of person? God bless you. Pray for the rest of us as you get up early in the morning, okay? How many of you need a little reminder to get up in the morning? Call it an alarm clock. 
Yeah, you need a little reminder. Well, Joshua, I don't know what he had, but he got up early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan. The Jordan was a river, not a basketball player. It was a, it was a, it was a river. Now, you have to insert yourself in the story, okay? Possibly two million Israelites who had spent 40 years in a wilderness wandering around had now come onto the east bank of this Jordan River. They're staring across, and they're, they're wondering, when are we going to get to go over? When are we going to cross over? Josh was leading them now, and this is the climactic moment. They came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. And in the, at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant, underline that, the Ark of of the covenant. That's the first visual reminder. We'll come back and unpack that in just a moment. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Underline the word follow. That is what the Christian life is all about. It's about following the Lord. Verse 4, yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits. How tall are you? I doubt you would give me your height in cubits. How many of you have measured something in a cubit lately? So let's, let's make the conversion here. 2,000 cubits is approximately 1,000 yards, roughly three football fields, about a half a mile. So the ark was to be in front of them, but they were not to get too close to it. There was to be a gap. There was to be a distance of about a half a mile. Why the distance? We'll come back and explain that in a minute. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, or half a mile in length, and do not come near it in order that you may know the way that you should go. For you have not passed this way before. God was leading them to a place they had never been before. That's one of the lessons for us here this morning. No matter where you at, you no, no matter where you are, no matter how far you've come, there is a journey God wants to take you on that you've never experienced before. And some of us are afraid to move onward because we're not quite sure God is going to go with us. Us. That's the, the lesson in the story. If we're going to go some places we've never been before, we need to be assured that God is going with me. And so that's what God was calling them to do here in verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders or wonderful things among you. See the word consecrate there in verse 5? Interesting word. We don't use that so much anymore. You don't tell your children at the end of the day, I want you to go up into the bathroom, run some bath water, and consecrate yourself. The word consecrate simply means to wash. And can you get the picture here? Again, you have to insert yourself in the story. These people have been wandering around a desert for 40 years. How many layers of dust do you think were on the children? And God says, before you cross over into that land, we want you to leave every speck of dust from this land behind. Don't bring the residue of the wilderness into the promised land. It's a great picture for us, right? The place that we were when the Lord found us and the place God wants to bring us into the promised land of faith and grace and salvation. He doesn't want any of the former you contaminating the new you in the new place that he's going to bring you. He wants to completely and thoroughly wash you of your dusty past. It's a great word picture for us. Then in verse 6, And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Let's just stop right there. Let's talk about this Ark of the Covenant. Now, when I say the word Ark, if you're thinking about a big boat with a bunch of animals, wrong Ark, okay? That's a different place in the Bible. That's the, 
that's Noah, right? Remember him? That this is a different ark. As a matter of fact, the word ark just simply means container or chest or box. This ark of the covenant was something that God specifically instructed the priests to construct and carry. This box contained the two stone tablets that God used his own finger to write the Ten Commandments on. God never wanted them to forget his law, and so he needed a box to carry the law. There was something else in there. There was the provision of manna. There was a bowl of manna. Those 40 years in the wilderness, God fed them on the way with something called manna. What is manna? The answer to that question is yes, because the name of manna means what is it? So what is manna? What is it? Yes. That's, that's what it is. We don't really know what it was. I like to think of it as a Krispy Kreme donut myself, okay? That, but in, in this container was the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and a bowl of manna, and I think Aaron's uh, staff was in there as well. It looks something like this. It wasn't all that big. It was only about four feet long. It was two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall. It was completely covered with gold. It was beautiful. It was ornate. On top, the lid was completely gold, and it had the image of two angels with outstretched wings over their head, covering their face, till the, the tips of those two wings almost touched. This was a piece of furniture that was put in the tabernacle, the place where God's people came to worship, and most importantly, the place where the priest one day a year on the Day of Atonement would sacrifice an animal. The blood would be shed. The blood of that animal would be sprinkled across the mercy seat. The mercy seat was actually the lid or the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And symbolically, the people understood this is the place where God is. Now, we understand that God is everywhere present at the same time. That's something we call the doctrine of omnipresence. God is everywhere present at the same time. But back in this day, this was the days before the Holy Spirit was given to the church to indwell believers, and it was a sense in which God's presence kind of rested in places, not so much in people, and so you had to go and meet with God, and only the, the holiest of holies was the place where you could meet Him. And so the priest would, would sacrifice this animal and sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat. It was the picture of God's nature to redeem and to cleanse and to be merciful and to, to bring lost, dirty, sinful people into His presence it was a picture of atonement that this blood sacrifice would atone for the sins of his people, an innocent animal. It was, of course, a preview of coming attractions when one day, thousands of years later, God would send his son as the perfect lamb of God to shed his blood, to sacrifice once and for all for the sin of all people. And so this was a preview of, of coming attraction. There was something else that happened on the day of atonement. Not only was one animal sacrificed, but there was a a goat that would be present, and the priest would put his hands on the head of that goat, and he would pray, and he would confess the sins of the people. And did he know what he would do with that goat? He would set that goat free, and that goat was known as the scapegoat. As he was set free, all of that happened around this piece of furniture. And Joshua told the people, pick it up, carry it, and follow the ark. Symbolically, go where God goes. And it was interesting. He told them, be close enough that you can see it, but don't get too close. Keep some distance. And the idea was that when the priest carrying this thing took a step, the people were to take a step. When the priest stopped, the people were to stop. And make sure there is some distance between. Why did he tell them, be close enough to see it, but don't get too close? Well, it's symbolic 
of how we should properly view God. There's two doctrines that we believe in our view of God, and and Christians have a tendency to get in one ditch or the other. We always want to knock the sides out of the grandfather clock in the pendulum as we think about God. These two doctrines is what we call the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. Let me explain these two terms. The transcendence of God is, is simply the fact that we believe God is holy. He is not like us. He is sinlessly perfect. He has moral perfection. There's a place in the Bible where it says that God dwells in unapproachable light. In other words, you want to keep a little distance. As a matter of fact, there's places in the Old Testament where people got too close to the ark and they died because of the holiness of God symbolized there in the ark. We believe in the transcendence of God. Uh, Older theologians sometimes talk about the otherness of God. So, if your view of God is kind of like your grandfather that hands out candy and, and quarters and has that long beard and you just crawl up in his lap and you stroke his beard, and if that's your view of God, you need a healthy dose of the transcendence of God. You are treating God a little too casually. And you're not treating God, viewing God, as holy. God is not something to be played around with. Some of you of more sanguine personalities, if you were part of the Israelite people there, you'd probably want like, man, I wonder if we can get a ride on that thing. Why don't we just sit on there and play around? Listen, some of you treat God way too casually. And you need to be reminded this morning, through the picture of the ark, God is holy. Don't mess around with God. Don't treat him lightly. You might want to keep your distance because he's not like you. Now, that's one doctrine, but there's a balancing doctrine in the Bible, and it's what we understand as the imminence of God. Not only is God holy, but God is near. He said, make sure you're following it. In order to follow it, you have to be able to see it. You have to be close enough to see it. You see, some people that take uh, the doctrine of transcendence to its furthest extreme, they end up in a ditch over here, and they think that God is somehow unknowable. He's just he's kind of this ancient God of the past, and, and like he created the world, and he wound it up, but he just kind of stepped back and was like, just let it go, and surely God is not really interested in me and my issues and you know he probably doesn't really hear my prayers and you're treating God way too impersonally and you need to be reminded not only is God holy God is near he knows you he's concerned about you he's concerned about the hurts and the pain that you brought in this auditorium right now and he wants you to get a little closer so that you can follow. God is a God who can be known, and that is only possible because Jesus Christ has come to make God known. He was the image of the invisible God, the perfect imprint of God's nature. Through Jesus, God can be known. God is holy, but God is near. God is transcendent, but God is imminent. Don't treat God too casually, and don't treat God too impersonally. That's one of the reminders that the ark gives us. That's why he told them, follow it, but keep your distance. It's a good reminder for us this morning as well. I want you to look over at uh, verse 13. Let's get down to the end of the chapter here. Let's find out what happened. So they're about to cross over. The, the priests are carrying the ark before them. In verse 13, it says this. When the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. 
and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So if you've been paying attention, you should have been asking the question, how is an entire nation going to get into a land that is bordered by a body of water? Well, fortunately, God has already proven that is not too difficult a task for him. The generation before, God parted the Red Sea to get them across out of Egypt. Now he's going to do the same miracle with a different leader, Joshua, not Moses, to prove that as God was with Moses, God is with Joshua. It's not about the man, it's about the God of the man. And so here they are, and he says, these priests, the waters are not going to stop until the people of faith take a step. Now, can you, what, what if you were one of the priests, and you're the first to go over this current is flowing, and you're thinking, okay, God, just we're ready for you to, to part the waters. Go ahead and stop that, and, and then we'll cross over. Do you see the sequence in verse 13? That's not the way God wanted it to happen. God wanted them to take a step before the waters stopped. Would you have had enough faith to take the step? What if they took the step, but God didn't stop the waters? We'd have a bunch of drowned priests. That's a problem. And so it took an incredible amount of faith for these men to take the first step. Let's find out what happened here in verse 14. So when the people set out from the tents and passed over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks through the time of harvest. Don't you love the part in the parentheses right there? In case you were thinking they were finding the shallow places to cross over, just to let you know, this was a time that the Jordan River was flooded. It was the deepest part of the river. It was the deepest season to cross, to, to cross over. And it was going to take a miracle in order to get these people across. And in verse 16 it says, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at a city called Adam. Adam was about 19 miles up river. When God made a way, he made a big way. They're like, we got a lot of people to get over. This is not going to be like the security line at the Phoenix airport. Not one by one. We're all going over together. We're going to give you a 19-mile gap to get you over. And so he stops the water, and that... Uh, he gives us some more details. Now look down at verse uh, 17. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Notice, it was dry ground. It wasn't even muddy. God not only parted the waters, He dehydrated the mud so that their feet didn't even get dirty on the way. It says, On dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over. What's the lesson for us? There are some steps of faith that are required by God's people if we're going to move onward. And unfortunately... Some of you have stopped moving onward because you are waiting for God to make it easier for you to take a step. And God is saying, move, step. Like, I, 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 that looks dangerous. That looks a little risky. God says, show me your faith. Take the step and move. And I know some of you here, maybe here for the first time, and maybe Christianity's kind of new to you, and you're like, you're opening the Bible, it's like, what is all this stuff about Jesus and dying on the cross? And I'm not sure I want to be a part of these people. You're kind of hanging out in the shadows. And can I just say to you, the only way you get in to heaven is by having enough faith to take the step 
that God is calling you to take? You don't get it by osmosis. You don't get it by just hanging around the people of God or hanging around church. You get salvation. You get the land of your inheritance when you have enough faith to take the step to cross over from the person you once were to the person God wants you to be in Jesus Christ. It's time to cross over. What are you waiting for? Do you understand God has given you the reminder, this picture? We don't need an ark anymore. Jesus Christ is the true and better picture of our ark. He's the one that crossed over before us. Before us, He went through the judgment of God's wrath. The waters passed over Him so He could make a way for us to cross over into the life that He wants us to have, the place of forgiveness and grace and, and, and enjoying the presence and the pleasure of God. What are you waiting for? Some of the rest of you, you've been a Christian for years. You crossed over into salvation years ago, but you've stopped moving onward. You've stopped taking steps of faith because it looks a little risky. And what God wants to remind you of is this. I am with you. In every battle you fight, every time you're under attack, in every temptation, I am with you. Take the step of faith. Some of you, you've been hurt and there's pain in your heart. God wants to remind you, I am with you in the pain. Some of you are isolated, you're lonely. God wants to remind you, you can trust me. Take the step of faith. Follow me. I am with you. Well, that's the first reminder. Here's the second reminder that God gives us, and it's this. I will never forget where I came from. We're going to see another very vivid picture, a very vivid reminder in chapter 4. Begin reading in verse 1. When all the nation had, passed, had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, each from each tribe, you have to understand something about the nation of Israel. They were divided up into 12 tribes, and God says, I want you to get one man from each tribe. They're going to represent the tribes. Verse 3, it says, And command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the, into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, verse 6, that this may be a sign, a symbol, a reminder, a picture. Let it be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so that these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. A forever reminder of the deliverance, the salvation, the grace, the miracle that God did to make a way for you to get out of the wilderness and into the promised land. So there were these 12 stones. And you know what? As you think about these stones, quite a contrast to the very ornate gold ark, all the pageantry and all the ceremony around the ark. There couldn't be a greater contrast than a rock. Just let that remind you of God's goodness to you. And so there were these 12 stones that were stacked up and they were to be a reminder. Do you have any stones of remembrance of God's goodness to you? Seasons and times in your past when God so moved on your behalf that you need to mark that. You know, quite honestly, as people, we are a lot better at piling up rocks of hurt and unanswered prayer and disappointment. And that's where our minds go to. We want to remember all the junk in the past. 
God wants you to remember His goodness and His grace, times and seasons of deliverance. He wants you to remember those spiritual high water marks in your life. Maybe it was a truth that you read in Scripture and God captured your attention in your heart, and it was a major step for you crossing over from the person that you once were into the person He wanted you to be. I can remember times and seasons in my life. I, I, I remember just for all of us, the, the first spiritual marker that we should have is, is the time of our salvation. And here's what we need to understand. Moving away from God happens in small, almost imperceptible drifts. Do you understand this? You don't even really have to do anything to drift away from God. Just do nothing, and you will drift into a place where one day you're going to wake up and God seems very, very far away. But here's what we understand from the book of Joshua. Moving onward with God happens in big, decisive shifts. Follow His leading. Take the step. Move over. And God was calling His people. So for all of us here this morning, we need to understand, if you choose to do nothing, if you just kind of take some notes and go home and live your life, um, you're probably not going to move onward with God. But if this morning... God's presence and God's goodness seem so real to you that you are tired of living where you have always lived. And this morning you say, I am going onward with God. You will find you are in a better place immediately than you were even yesterday. Do you have any stones of remembrance when that took place? Do you remember seasons and times? Maybe it was a conference. Maybe it was just a church service where God met you in such a real way and God's word came alive. Can I just kind of say to you, I trust that every week is a bit of that happening where you're taking steps onward. And some of you say, well, Trent, you kind of seem to say the same thing every week. It's because you forget, all right? I forget. I can't even remember what I preached last week. Why would I think you would remember anything? And so we're going to move forward each week that we meet together. That's why we meet, just to be reminded of the goodness of God in the places He wants us to go. And, and we're not the person that we once were. He wants us to make some big shifts. And as I've said this morning, there are these spiritual markers that we should have looking back at times and seasons where this happened. Can I just simply ask you, do you remember when your life was marked from moving from sin to salvation? You crossed over. Hey, anybody notice that the Pope got in a fight with like Donald Trump this week? Anybody notice that? Like, what is going on with these two guys? I'm like, and I'm sitting back like, do either one of these guys understand that you move over into being a Christian, not by anything you do, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who made the way for us to be where God wants us to be, dwelling and living in a place in right relationship with God. Has that happened to you? It's like, oh, I've just kind of always been a Christian. No, you haven't. You've always been a dirty, rotten sinner. And until God delivers you from that evil, wicked heart, you are still in your sin. You have not yet crossed over by faith. If that's never happened to you, the first spiritual marker needs to take place today when by faith you receive Christ and trust what He did on the cross so you could cross over into a better place. That's the first spiritual marker. And God has given us in the New Testament a very vivid picture for every person that does that. When that takes place, when you cross over, what's the next thing God wants you to do? The very first act of obedience of a Christian. Do you know what it is? Baptism. Baptism is like, well, that just seems called ceremonial. And you just said it's not what you do. That's right. Baptism doesn't save you. But God never wants you to forget that the old man who you were has died. You're not that person anymore. What do you do with an old man who dies? You bury him. 
Now, fortunately, it's a symbol, so it's just water, and we just keep it down there for a second, and you've been raised to new life. You get a brand new life, and so we bring you back up. That is the vivid picture of what happens to a person who is crossed over. So here at Harvest, we understand this biblically. Baptism is not some big ceremony, but it's the picture that you point to to remind everybody, I have crossed over. Now listen, your baptism should be on the right side of your salvation. Your baptism is a spiritual marker that points back to when you crossed over. If you got baptized as a little kid or baptized somewhere back, and you probably might not even remember it. And maybe you went through some of that in the past. But since that time, you have crossed over from sin to salvation. Your baptism needs to be on the right side of your salvation. It points back to what Christ has done for you to get you out of where you were into the place where you are. That's what the New Testament teaches about baptism. If you've never done that, we would love to schedule your baptism. If you have genuinely, by faith, crossed over, and now you're a part of the family of God. But do you understand this? That is just the starting line. Anybody with me watching the Daytona 500 this afternoon? Do you understand? That's the starting line. It's not the finish line of our faith. From that point, you are to continue to take steps of faith. There should be continual markers. Maybe there's times that you've journaled things that God showed you in your time with God. Maybe Andrea has a picture in our house of a, of a scripture verse that's just the reminder that God is our dwelling place. The reason why that's a spiritual marker for us is because for 15 years we were kind of nomadic as we traveled from different church to different church, basically a different church every week for 15 years we lived in a trailer, we're trailer trash, and we took our kids with us and we lived on church parking lots, different, and just, we just never feel, felt like we had a home. And God showed Andrea that verse. You are my dwelling place. My home is not a place. My home is a person. That was a spiritual marker for us. And maybe you have things like that in your past. Maybe there's a spiritual marker when you crossed over from being self-indulgent to surrendered. Maybe you've crossed over from being compromising. and you, you've, you, you've tried to keep one foot in the wilderness and one foot in the promised land. You've got the Jordan River, River straddling in the middle. Some of us want to be like that. No, why don't you cross completely over, quit compromising, and remember God is with you, and remember where you've come. Maybe it's time to cross over from fearful into trusting. It's like, I'm not going to fear what I see on the news. Maybe it's good for you not to watch the news and to be reminded of what God has done for you. He is with you. And have you crossed over from living an autonomous isolated, individualistic life to belonging. One of the important verses we read there, it says that all of the people finished passing over. They didn't leave anybody behind. I don't know what your relationship is to this church, but you need a local New Testament church that you belong to. You say, I tried that. Those people are nuts. True? But so are you. You're going to fit in great around here, okay? We're all jacked up. We all got issues. We all need each other. And this is a place where we lock arms with fellow jacked up people. And we try to get some stuff done that we can't do isolated from one another. It's a place of belonging. And we don't do this alone. You have a spiritual marker like that? Maybe today needs to be that spiritual marker. One more reminder. Here it is. I will never forget who I am. Do you know who you are? Let's see this. One more very visual, probably the most visual, the most graphic of all reminders in chapter 5. This is what it says. It's beginning verse 2. At that time... The Lord said to Joshua, now remember, all of the nation is now in the promised land. There are battles to fight. There are more steps of faith to take. But the first thing he tells them to do in verse 2 is make flint 
knives and circumcised the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at uh, Gibeath. How do you say that? Um, why? What? Why? Really? Don't you want these young, courageous, strong men to go fight the battle of Jericho? No, no, I want you to do that first. First, I want you to. Sir, why? Why? Verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, not uh, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness and until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Israel, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Remember, they were grumbling and complaining. It's like, done, fine, you're in the penalty box, you're not going in. And so this next generation, this young generation, is the one that actually went in and it said, uh, the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land of the Lord that had sworn to his fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7, so it was their children whom he raised up in that place that Joshua was circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not yet been circumcised on the way. Now, by this point, you should be saying, does anybody know what he's talking about? I don't understand circumcision. Just looking around here for a second, making sure we have a mature... Do we have a mature crowd? Okay. Can I explain this without snickering? I remember as a... I, I met the... I crossed over. I became a Christian when I was 15. And I was discipled by my youth pastor who said, you need to read the Bible every day. So I started reading the Bible every day. And I kept coming across this word. Circumcised, circumcision. I'm like in the world is that I'm, I'm i'm 15 16 years old there was no google so i thought i need to ask and so i remember the day very spiritual marker in my life i picked up the phone and i called my youth pastor the most theologically astute person i knew and i said help me out with this what is this circumcision thing what is that putting him in an awkward position of having to explain this to me He's like, oh, well, um, it's, uh, it's, it's surgery that, that cuts away some skin on the male anatomy. I'm like, you're kidding me. That's in the Bible? And I said, man, I'm glad I'm not Jewish. I'm so glad. I'm, he's like, well, Trent, you have to understand, like, uh, most men are, are circumcised at birth. Really? No way. Like, how could, how dare they? You know what? Did, uh, didn't there like some kind of permission slip that I should have signed? Like, this is, like what is going on here? And I'm like, well, why? I'm not Jewish. Why would they? It's like, well, now it's just like for more personal hygiene, things like that. Okay, okay. TMI, that's enough, especially in church. That's enough. Do, do we understand what's happening here? It, th there is a, cutting that takes place. And what we need to understand in Scripture is this, that circumcision was a reminder to the people of God of who they were. It set them apart from every other people on the earth. God wants His people to be distinct. So here they were going into a godless territory. Does that happen for you on Monday mornings? When you cross over out of your nice little comfort zone, you had your nice little weekend, you went to church, and you feel like, man, these people are my people, and this is, we all kind of speak the same language, and we kind of all have the same values, and you cross over out of here into the godless culture you live in? Here's what God wants you to be reminded of. You are a distinct people. You think differently. You act 
differently. You worship differently than all of the people out there among whom we operate and yet who are not our people. We live distinct lives, marked lives. You talk about a spiritual marker, this was a physical marker that they needed to be reminded of. And I think this is the reason why, is because all those young, strong, courageous men were going to cross over and they were going to see some cute Canaanite girls. And they were going to be tempted to go flirt with the Canaanite girls. They were going to be tempted to marry the Canaanite girls. God gave them a very physical, visual reminder. These are not your people. These are not your values. You are to live distinct. You are a child of a holy God. I want you to see a verse here. Look down at verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The name Gilgal means to roll and so God uses a word picture again. He says, today, because you have now been circumcised, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Why is he bringing up Egypt? That would, they hadn't been in Egypt in 40 years. Do you know what God was saying? I am cutting off the part of you that is still hanging on to Egypt. He wanted them to forever understand, you are not an Egyptian, and you are not a Canaanite. You are a chosen and loved child of God in covenant relationship with me. Live a distinct life. Now, for those of you that have read the rest of the story, how well did that go? Did that surgery prevent them from compromising? Being idolatrous? Yes or no? No. As a matter of fact, a few hundred years later, Jeremiah, a prophet, is writing a commentary on these people that went in, and he says this. Speaking the voice of God, he says, I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Just catch that? Circumcised merely in the flesh. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. There is not an external ceremonial religious practice that can guarantee that your heart won't wander from God. God wants your heart. God wants to perform surgery on your heart. He wants to cut away the parts of your heart that are unbroken and unsurrendered. He wants to cut away the parts of your heart that are not like Jesus. And so you can go through all the external religious ceremony you want, including baptism and Lord's Supper and circumcision and confirmation and confession and all this other stuff. Listen, if your heart has not been cut by the Word of God, then you're like these people in Israel, practicing external religion, but your heart is far from Him. We read about circumcision, listen, 88 different times in the Bible. 32 times in the Old Testament. 56 times in the New Testament. And so this is again a reminder to those of us that are living in this age that God wants our heart. The Apostle Paul writing in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, 
not by the letter. Does God have your heart? He goes on and writes to another church, and this was a church in Galatia that was always trying to add rules and regulations to faith. And he says to these people, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You don't get spiritual points for some external religious surgery. He says, but only faith working through love. Does your heart love God? That is the only guarantee that your heart won't stray from God, is if there is a love remembering who is with me, remembering who I am, remembering where I've come from. All of these things should stir our hearts and cut our hearts to live as the distinct people of God and to continue to take steps of faith moving onward into the places He wants to lead me. Are you following Him? Are you stepping over or have you stopped because you're afraid? Be reminded of who you are. Don't compromise. Don't flirt with the world. Be who God made you to be. God will take you to the places he wants you to go. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Before we leave, would you just process, what is the Lord saying to you? Maybe today there's a, a stone of remembrance that he wants to build in your life. Why don't you just speak back to him right now in prayer and say, Lord, thank you for giving me a picture of your holiness. Thank you for inviting me to draw near. I don't want to treat you too casually. I don't want to treat you too impersonally. And I realize that I've been afraid to take a step of faith. Maybe some of you here today would say, you know, for the very first time, I need to take that step from sin to salvation, trusting the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the full and complete payment for my sin. And if you need to do that today, open up your heart to Him. Confess, Lord, I need you. I want to follow you. Forgive my sin. I'm tired of wandering in that wilderness. I want to enjoy your presence, your pleasure in my life. Give me the boldness to publicly proclaim that you are Savior, you are Lord. If you need to profess faith in Christ, pastors and elders are always here at the front at the end of the service and invite you not to leave to come forward step over let us know so we can help you lock arms not to live isolated but to live in a community of people that are distinct marked as the people of God Father I pray for my friends here today thank you for your word that is so clear so vivid Thank you for the promises that we see that you are always with us. We don't need a piece of furniture to remind us of that. We have your spirit. Thank you that you've reminded us today of where we've come from. The people that we were 10 years ago. Steps that you've led us to take. You've changed us. You've brought us out of shame and guilt and sin and pain. Thank you for reminding us who we are, that we're marked as a holy people of God, and today we want to say to you, God, wherever you lead, we will follow. Give us the faith to believe. In Jesus' name, we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our response.